Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you can partner with Booking Protect to offer your customers a better buying experience, more peace of mind in their purchases, and how you and your organization can create a new stream of revenue, visit www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. While I'm on the subject of Booking Protect, this podcast is going to fall into the lead up to Intix. And my guest today is going to be my good friend Martin Gameltoff from ActivityStream. But while you're at Intix, or if you are going to be at Intix, make sure you stop by and visit me, my good friends Simon, Mab, and Kat Spencer at the Booking Protect booth, which is number 204. Uh, I think we're right next to the Ticketmaster. Um, you know, we, we're going to probably have some games and some prizes, some British chocolate, um, all kinds of fun stuff. Simon's going to be delivering a talk on uh, creating a platform for your venue to increase the number of online reviews you get. He's going to share the case study of how Booking Protect has become a five-star trust pilot partner and how that has had a tremendous positive impact on Booking Protect's business. Um, you know, and you'll get a chance to meet Simon and talk to him about these things. He's got some handouts, some really great stuff to share with you. Uh, you'll get a chance to meet the famous cat at Cat Ticks on Twitter, um, and I'll be there. Um, if you are going to be at Intix in Dallas next week, make sure you send me an email, dave at davewakeman.com. Put in the subject line Intix, and we'll make sure we get together, have a cup of coffee, grab a drink, uh, have a chat, whatever you want. Okay, so again, make sure you hit me up. That's dave at davewakeman.com. Put the subject line Intix in there. And we'll make sure we get together. Now, my episode today, as I mentioned earlier, is with my friend Martin Gameltoff, who is from ActivityStream. And this is Martin's second time on the podcast. The first time was really early. I think it was episode three. And Martin's episode the first time really taught me a couple lessons on how to be a more effective uh, interviewer, podcaster, um, host of this thing. So, you know, and the episode was sort of short, so people were like, going, oh man, this this conversation should have gone on, or could have gone on a lot longer, so I wanted to have Martin back, um, especially as he's going to be at Intix, and he's got a lot of really great stuff that ActivityStream's working on. Um, in this episode, we talked about a lot. It's fairly long, fairly in-depth. Um, it might even be a little technical for a lot of people, but we talked about uh, da data modeling. We talked about... Um, customer moments. We talked about using scan data. Uh, we talked about resale and resale partnerships. We talked about technology. We talked about predictions. We talked about, um, you know, revenue generation. We talked about pricing strategies, behavioral science, uh, geez, man, optimal pricing, return on investment. Uh, geez, I mean, tons of stuff here on my notes. And I think it's like really like it might be a little much to listen to at one time just because there's so much to get that we get into. Um, but I think this is going to be a episode that you learn a tremendous amount from. Um, and I just love talking to Martin. So without further ado, here's my second conversation with Martin Gameltoff from ActivityStream. I want to welcome back to the Business of Fun my good friend Martin Gameltoff from ActivityStream. What's up, Martin? Hey, how are you doing, Dave? Good to be back. Yeah, no, the, this was um, – you were on – I think it was episode three 
of this of this podcast experiment. And, early, um, days. early days. Yeah, and I, I want to say that you were like pretty much like the most influential person that I've had that you know impacted the way that this thing has been done because um, once the first time we talked, we were constrained by our time, and people were like, "Well, I could have gone on listening to you guys talk for a long, long time." So I figured today we would do it, and um, you get the full Dave experience when we don't necessarily have a. Uh, necessarily a limit as as much of a limited time. So thank you for doing it again. Um, I think it's going to be fun for everybody. Happy, happy to. I was um, I was looking forward to the second half of that sentence because I I was fearing that you would say that that episode really taught you everything that you were doing wrong. So uh, but uh, but good that 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 the podcast has really matured and I'm, I've been yeah happy to follow it. Yeah, no, it, it was it was uh, so much feedback came back and they go like you know I, I was always really wed to the idea of like, let's do 20 minutes, right? Or something like this. And people were like, if you're doing a good job of having a conversation and we're having an interesting conversation, then it's interesting for the the, the listeners, not the readers, the listeners. Um, and that was what I found out. So then I realized that, well, maybe I can go a little bit deeper because it's not like I'm asking this. I don't, you know, I don't script the, the questions and we don't have like a rote conversation. So hopefully we're not going to book in this by doing a second one where we completely screw the pooch. <laughs> 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 but at least, I mean, the, the first one gave birth to to like Martin's mom being a thing in ticketing, which was great. Uh, so <laughs> I was, uh, I mean, I, I've I've had that story recounted to me like so many times now. So yeah, yeah, no, it, it, that's what always is amazing. Me, me and, and we'll stop having a you know. This is something that people bust our chops about all the time is every time we get together and have a conversation, it's like a little private conversation. Um, but it, it's like amazing how many people, too, they talk about, well, I heard about Martin's mom. <laughs> and I was like, God, this is awesome. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I don't know how she feels about this, but, you know, <laughs> but we, we, we are at least amused by it. And, it. and it does speak to the reach and the impact of and people actually listen to the podcast, so which is I'm very grateful for. So, Apparently, yeah. Yeah. But uh, let's get let's let's start having this conversation so we don't bore people. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is something you you sent me an article yes a blog on the Activity Stream website yesterday, and you meant to antagonize me. But then when I read the article, I realized you weren't antagonizing me at all. You had really taken the idea of discounts, and you had come up with some really valuable ideas on how to discount without giving discounts or instead of in lieu of a discount you create trade some value for a reduction in price which is again stuff i talk about all the time because i'm going to say it again for i don't know the maybe the millionth time now this might be the one millionth time i've said this discounts destroy your brand and so i want to start out knowing all the investments and all the new tools and ideas that we that you've created and worked on since the last time we talked i want to start talking about discounts We'll talk yeah. about, and I'm going to try to remember to put a link to the blog post in the show notes, but cool. what you have found out about discounts that you can teach the audience so that they don't use discounts to you to make price less of a concern for customers. Yeah, you can say, I mean, the I, I was thinking about that article for some time because I've been listening to your podcast and listening to various conversations you've had where you've come on you've talked on the the element of discounts and I was um I was just going a little bit back to my my years in ticketing so not as much what I'm doing now but my years in ticketing and I was 
I was just thinking about all the bad examples that I've seen. Um, just as I mean, just as you've mentioned and described, like all the bad examples that really destroy your brand and they teach your um, your customers that you should just wait out, or uh, it just aggravates those that have bought tickets at full price. And I was um, I was just going a little bit back to to my experience from that time and saying there's one key element to selling discounted tickets and that is explaining the why so if i've bought a ticket if i've bought a full price ticket and someone else gets a discount i just want to understand why i mean yeah so i listed a few examples that i felt worked really well and they're not destroying your brand and they're not sort of aggravating the 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 people that have bought at full price. And one of my favorite examples is just like saying, okay, what if you make people work for it? Um, so there was, there was the, the National Theater in Copenhagen for many, many, many years had a small box office in a central square in Copenhagen. And every day you could go at five o'clock and you could buy discounted tickets for that night's uh, event. And I mean, you, you, there was no guarantee of tickets and it might be raining. It's then Denmark. Uh, so it, it, it was probably raining or snowing. Um, so, so at that point, I mean, you, you were making people work for it and it was a great outlet for students. It was a great outlet for elderly people. It was a great outlet for those people that may have more time than they have money. And I'm just saying, there's no one who's going to sit in the audience that night having paid full price, even if they're sitting next to some student who's still soaking wet um, and they're sitting next to a student and they go like, oh, so you, you stood in line and go, yeah, so I got tickets for half price. Um, no one is going to be upset about that kind of that kind of discount. And sometimes people would line up and they would just go, like, no, it's sold out. So they would have like invested their time and not gotten a ticket. And that's just one of the examples I have. There were, I listed a few more, but it's all about explaining the why. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. And it also reminds me of it's a marketing thing for the venue, right? Because I, as you were explaining this, it reminds me of the TKTS booth in Times Square in New York, right? And it's like, you know, people are lined up for hours at a time and they don't know what they're going to get when they get there. Right. But, you know, they, it's it's part of the story of their trip to New York. Right. Which to certain people, you, you know, has a certain level of amount of romanticism to it, um, you know, which I'm sure is the same with the with the theater in Copenhagen is, um, you know, there's a certain mystique and a certain story that goes along with this. And really, you know, the, the discounting the way you defined it was, you know, you make people work for it or you um you trade value for exposure, um, you know, value in the form of a cheaper ticket. Um, you know, there, I mean, it's a good, it's actually a, you know, from my point of view, which, you know, I'm like probably one of the biggest opponents of discounts going, or at least the loudest, um, you know, <laughs> it, it's a really good think piece for people to go like, well, I don't just have to like, I'm panic and say, well, I'm going to give you tickets for 50% off with a coupon um, like a week before the show, because there's many, many different ways, you know, and, and my, my, you know, I guess the next question too is like, as people are thinking through this, right, uh, hopefully they'll read the article, they'll digest it, they'll come up with some new ideas. Um, 
but maybe in the data and the way like the stuff you guys are working on too, you found some ways that are interesting to help increase the, the perceived value of a ticket or an experience for people so that you encourage them to buy earlier. Because one of the challenges I think people all over the world are dealing with as far as like buying or selling tickets is encouraging people to spend their money in advance, right? To, you know, the way you can smooth out your demand so you know who's going to be there so that you, um, you know, understand if you're going to have a challenge selling a show so you can change your tactics and your strategies to make sure you're not sitting there with a half-empty house, right? Um, do you have any uh, data or information or any kind of ideas as far as, like, increasing the perception of value so that we can encourage people to buy tickets earlier? I mean, there's um... – one thing that, that strikes me every time we set up a new client, uh, because every time we set up a new client, we we start out by getting a lot of historical data. So, I mean, the first import is always really, really interesting because we get all the dashboards at once. It's not about like the day to day. It's just like we get full history and we can see everything. And one of the things that I, I typically uh, look at is, um, an overview of customers and customer behavior. Uh, there's a lot of, it's typically uh, a dashboard where people just lose themselves into it uh, because they've never been able to like look at their entire customer base and, and look at their behavior across categories and across uh, demographics and so on. So people tend to sort of just go exploring into that dashboard. And one thing that I've noticed is that the whole myth about that the lead time is decreasing. I, I'm yet to see it in a major way. Um, I'm yet to see a client where we can see, okay, well, yeah, that has really decreased like year over year. Um, I'm still seeing like, okay, yeah, so for most performing arts or theaters, it's still like 50 days out. Um, I was looking at, we're setting up one of the Live Nation um, one of the Live Nation countries, um, and and it was just I thought there was something wrong with the data, but then I, I then I got to thinking, well, they're doing very very um, high profile shows, so obviously it's a completely different uh, sales pattern than, than what we usually see. Um, but in terms of what you can do, and I think for me, I say having. And I think you've mentioned this and you've had your discussion on, on this as well. Having um, having a pricing strategy going in, whether it's say, okay, so there's an early bird pricing. It will increase after 60 days, whatever. Um, so you have something to market against. Um, it's, a, it's a great communication tool. Prices will increase. So for all those that are aware of the show, but haven't made a decision to buy yet, it's a great triggering. Um, obviously, with the, with the whole, if, if prices are then later decreasing, that's going to be an issue. But uh, but for all of those where you, you sort of, what you want to do is just entice people to make a decision and buy early, I think that's still one of the most powerful tools. Um, another thing, I mean, we're looking a, a, a lot into pricing these days. Um, so we're looking into if we can see across a lot of data, um, like what are the optimal, what is the optimal distance between prices, like different price categories? What is, should you have like five 
dollars between them should have 10, 15, 20, like how, how big of a distance should you have so that they don't just sort of blend into each other, but, um, but actually just, uh, but on the other hand, don't, don't separate that much that people can't find themselves within the price categories, if that makes sense. Uh, so that's, that's going to take some months for us, but it's, uh, to have all the data in, in order to, to, to get to the bottom of that. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because I, I love, I mean, I spent so much time going on reading up on behavioral science and, and looking at how customers actually behave. So it's really, really interesting to see how data can then sort of have, a, make us look at myths and, and give us insights that, we can't just get from from looking at one data set. Like if you're looking at an individual venue, you won't just won't have enough data and enough history to 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 actually um, be able to 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 analyze it. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things. Yeah, no, the, I mean that's interesting that the um, the myth of bleed time decreasing is, is as bared out by data is false because. I- Maybe one of the questions might, might be true on, on an individual venue level, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. That's what I was going to say because then you, you, you backed it up by saying when you were working with Live Nation, one of the Live Nation companies or countries that, um, you know, they were selling different kinds of shows and maybe like high, more high demand or more hot shows and their buying pattern was a lot different. And, and maybe it brings up the question to me is like maybe one of the things that we are doing is like we have been following like, as a – industry put stuff on sale way too soon right because people are you know having or in theory having to make these buying decisions so so far in advance right that it's impossible for them to know what's going to happen you know six or 12 months in advance right to to plan for you know i'm going to go i'm going to be you know i'm going to go to london in a year right i mean i I mean maybe i will be there but um you know the thing is is like and maybe it smooths out some of demand and, you know, it cuts the reluctance to discount if you start squeezing that time period a little more, which I know you want the, you want to put the tickets on sale so you can sell them so you have the money because cash, you know, the cash flow is important. But maybe you're doing yourself more harm than good by doing this and maybe it's, you know, by having a tighter window, right, like of rolling things out in two months, you know. Every two hmm. months or so, you create an environment where you're still getting the cash flow benefit, but you're also compacting the demand so that the likelihood of it, something being important increases in the person's mind. I don't know. Maybe, I don't even know if I've asked the question. Maybe I'm crazy. I, 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 would, I would disagree. Um, uh, I mean, I, way back, I was talking to a promoter and he said like he could just see like the earlier he would put up shows – the more he would sell. I mean, I think when you're se- when you're talking about like decreasing the sales period and, and having people like uh, you can you can do your campaign and you can build your awareness and people will know that they need to act. That's that might be true if you have a very uh, specific audience that you know you're talking to them on a regular basis, but and and I would just say that like the real world, you don't know when uh, a conversation in an office comes up where people just go, oh, I've never heard of him, and they Google it and they found they find out that it's on sale, 
and it might be in four months or it might be in six months, but it's just some mention in the office at lunch um, that triggers a like a Google search. And if it's on sale, they'll buy it and and they won't get your newsletter and they won't get your email. They won't get your campaign two months out from the event. They're just overhearing something in the uh, in the cafeteria and go like, yeah, I always wanted to see that guy. Is he ever coming to this? I mean, is he ever coming to to my city? And they Google it. So I think that to make yourself available for all those little interactions in the world that that trigger people to buy. Um, I think in terms of when you should communicate, let's separate the two. Let's separate the two and say, okay, you should always just put things on sale whenever you know that they're happening. And then the communication can be different. I mean, you might want to communicate very early and then like two months out. But I think you need to separate the two. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, where it's like you you use incentives to get people to spend their money earlier on, right? So it's like, let's say uh, we're both Pearl Jam fans, right? Like, um, so Pearl Jam's coming to, we'll say DC, right? And um, I know that the tickets are going on sale right away. Um, I'm going to buy the tickets ASAP, right? But then if there, let's say there's a thousand tickets still available that are kind of lagging on, um, you know, the, the the communication changes over time, right? Like, so as you get closer to the show, instead of being $80, they become $85, right? Um, because, you know, probably there's going to be people, you know, it's to encourage people to buy them as early as possible, right? Um, you know, and create other incentives like this so that, like, there are there is something on sale. There is There are tickets on sale early enough that you can capture the revenue and you have the cash on hand. There's also a certain amount of tickets that are still available so that people, you have these, you know, these kind of off the offhand conversations. There's still tickets available for them, right? They might not be as, uh, early, you know, as great as for the people who are no doubt definitely going, bought in early, but they're still available. And so it allows like, you know, a, a smoothing of the revenue on the front end. But then also <laughs> it allows you to commit, maintain um, amount of inventory for, you know, to meet, you know, ongoing demand and uh, again, you may not have the data to, for this, but it's going to lead into the second, uh, the next question I want to ask you about is um, it also allows you a little bit more readily to maximize the revenue you're creating. Right? I mean, because you're not as wed to deep discounts and you're not as wed to, um, you know, things that are just going to de- deteriorate your, the value, the perceived value of your product um, or the real value of your product. Or, you know, and I don't know how the data plays out for that because that's why I have you on because I don't know anything about data as we've discussed over and over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's um, because one of the challenges, I guess, in, in live entertainment and especially, I mean, for festivals uh, where they typically do like a price ladder. So like the early bookers will get the lowest price. Uh, the problem is always like, yeah, but the early bookers, those that buy on day one, I mean, they're going to buy anyway so you're actually giving them a discount which is completely meaningless because they're your biggest fans so i mean you're losing revenue um and then i think for them what you need to do is is try to see if you can put more value into uh like a full price ticket even at that point so you can say okay you can go early bird price 
or you can go and buy this package, whatever is in that, um, and Eddie Vedder photo. Um, and then you get full price even from the, the fans that buy early while still getting your early booking, uh, your early book revenue. Yeah, you might. I mean, and I think I know where you're going to with this. It might be like, let's say we're going to charge $90 no matter what, right? It's always going to be $90. But if you buy your ticket the first day, you get, you're going to get a, a, a T-shirt, right? Like a special T-shirt um, and maybe, um, you know, likelihood of your ticket being better, right? So you get those two things. Then if you wait a month, you're not going to get your, – your tickets are probably going to be like pretty – pretty garbage right or maybe not as good right let's not say garbage because anytime you're in the building it's awesome um and then if you wait until like the week or two before the show you're not going to get the t-shirt and you're probably going to have the worst pick of the, the things and those are forms of changing exchanging value for money right you know you haven't limited your ability to you know maximize your revenue you've just changed the value proposition right because we know that creating a t-shirt the likely, you know, what is that going to add to the whole thing? A, a dollar or two, you know, at that scale. So it's really like a nominal cost. But having that money in advance is huge, right? Because you're going to make more than make up for that by having access to the cash. Yeah, I used to, to uh, ironically say to people that that giving uh, like price discounts, uh, the, the price discounts or price reductions had a very high gross margin. That's sort of a joke for economists, uh, but I mean, if you can if you can put in the the discount, uh, as you say, on on a on an add-on product. Uh, I mean, one of my favorites was uh, a, a festival that was um, if you booked early, you would get twenty beers, and after a month, you would get fifteen beers, and after two months, you would get ten beers. I mean, the beers don't cost them anything, and I mean, for the diehard fans, they would probably just show up on the first day and have the 20 beers and i mean they'll drink even more the next day and and or they might forget that they even had them so i mean it was just a it was a great publicity stunt and it wouldn't have cost them much and people probably either they had all the 20 beers and then they had more or they they didn't even drink the 20 so i mean i I like doing the the value the add-on discounts uh because they don't have uh, they don't cost you as much. Well, it's it's a discount, maybe. But what it really is is it increases, even if it's a discount or not a discount. It's an it's incentive. A, yeah, it's an incentive, and it adds perceived value, right? Like so, it's like, oh my god, I'm going to get to see the show, and my first beer is included, right? Because I know from starting out in nightclubs that the cost of a draft beer, um, especially if it's like a mass produced draft beer. Back in the day, back in time, uh, you know, God, if it's 50 cents, that's a lot. Um, because it used to be like bottles of beer was like, were like 50 to 75 cents, depending on what city you were in. You know, so like, again, this is like nothing. But the, the perception in the consumer's mind is huge, right? That's why when, when you see these pricing decisions in the States where a lot of the um, sports teams are cutting the pricing of their um, concessions, it's like I know the the – the costs of like some of these products. And I was like, well, the fact that you're charging 18 or $20 to begin with is insulting. I was like, going, you, it, you can cut the thing, cut the thing in half and you're likely to um, get somebody to buy two beers. So you still have maintained your, you know, pretty much your, most of your margin. Right. And the perception is like, Oh my God, I went and I had a couple beers. Not like I had one beer begrudgingly because it was $18. Right. It's just the story you're telling. 
right? You're not, you're, you're probably, maybe even if you're doing it right, you're probably going to make more money, right? And you're still not going to have hope, probably rampant drinking because those rampant drinkers are drinking no matter what. They're going nuts no, no matter what you're charging. It's the, about the story you're telling, which is like something that I know we talk about a lot, which is the customer moments, right? And one of the things that was interesting, which is where your mom came into this the last time we talked on the podcast was we were talking about defining customer moments. Now, I know in the interim, we've had now eight or nine more months of, of consumer data for you to, to learn about. Um, you know, you know, what are some of the new um, best cases or uh, case studies or ideas around customer moments? Because, uh, again, as we were talking about with like incentives and creating these experiences, the consumer moments are what people remember. And it's creating these really special connections that differentiates you know, live entertainment, the performing arts or sports from a night at the bar or the restaurant watching the game on TV or staying home and watching some, something on Netflix or doing something else. Um, you know, you know, what can you share with us about creating customer moments? Yeah, I think for me, uh, what is I, I mean, we're not we're not creating customer moments. Uh, our clients and organizations are. And uh, the only thing that we're sort of doing is enabling them to do them at scale um currently setting up uh, a theater in in the uk and they have been doing it for quite some time um but i mean it's been a very very manual process every day going through the customer list of that night finding out if there's some like are there first-time visitors are there some of our top customers is there a birthday um whatever it might be and that was they were limited to a few, a few elements that they were looking for because it would it would be way too time consuming. So what we're enabling them to do is basically just do it at scale because they will get in the morning and they'll have all the observations like these are the people that you should cater to today. Um, so, and I'm I'm yeah we're both headed to Intics in in about two weeks and I'm doing a session on customer moments and it's going to be. Really interesting because I'm, I come from the whole the data side and, and, and looking at behavioral science and why this actually triggers loyalty and why it's why it triggers peer to peer marketing. Um, but in the session with me is going to is going to be uh, Sean Robinson from the Center Theater Group um, who have been doing this and was actually one of the inspirations for for us to set up customer moments um, and and Anthony Esposito from the Atlanta Braves, who's also done a lot of really special moments for fans. Um, so I think now we're just looking at organizations and clients to learn what they want to do and and to continuously support them doing more. And um, yeah, I, I believe strongly in it. It's, it's customer be customer moments are. Very, very hard to put in a specific ROI on, uh, but it, so it, it is kind of a a belief. And um, but seeing some of the feedback that organizations get, I mean, handwritten letters. Um, I mean, today, if you get a handwritten letter, that means that you must have really connected uh, with a with a customer, right? Uh, so yeah, so you can say we're we're just enabling organizations to do them at scale and and see like what observations and what customers to 
to cater to. Um, it's very hard to for us to say like how you should do it. Uh, I think it's very much in your organization DNA. Like if you're a comedy club uh, with a very local audience, you might want to do something completely different than if you're a Broadway theater that has a lot of tourists coming. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that, the, the way when you said, what do you want to do? That that was interesting to me because, and I guess the question is, you know, you know knowing how the success or failure of a lot of pro- projects depends on how well and how effective you are about framing what success looks like, right? And I know that one of the big challenges that I face when I'm working with my clients is helping them understand uh, what they're trying to achieve. And knowing that, you know, the stuff that you're working on can be a little, number one, new to people, right? And it can probably seem a little overwhelming to people because it's so new. And, it, it you know, in some ways it probably seems like way like um, super, super high tech and like crazy out there, like Jetsons level stuff. You know, how do you walk people through the process of figuring out what they want to do with your tool, you know, and how to put them in a position to be successful with it? Because I, I know that, um, you know, if we're not careful, AI falls into that buzzword bin with like all these other great ideas and great tools that it becomes absolutely meaningless because nobody knows what to do with them. Yeah. Um, we typically focus very little on technology. I mean, if, if I'm, I mean, no one wants to hear about cluster analysis and, and predictive modeling and AI and, and, and all these things, um, unless you're the data scientist somewhere. Um, so, and, and I personally, I, I'm not that interested in, in that part of it. I'm, I'm more interested in what it enables. Uh, so you can say we spend so much time on building a platform that is specifically made for live entertainment venues and theaters and, and performing arts um, and sports clubs. And that, I think, is what makes the most of the difference, that people feel that, okay, this is not just a visualization tool that has two, two axes and a graph of something. This is a tool that was that is easy to pick up, whether you're in sales or box office or ticketing manager or uh, operations manager or you're sitting in marketing or you're uh, the customer relationship uh, responsible. That's There are tools that are very specifically aimed at the different roles. And um, I mean, just yesterday we did a, a, we did a refocusing on some on how a map is displayed and immediately it just made a whole tool better. And there's no, there's absolutely nothing fancy about what we did. It was just like zooming in a little bit more and centering it on the venue, which means that you don't have to center and resume as a user. And it just made a huge difference because people are doing this over and over and over again, setting up specific segments. Um, so I think it's, and you'll, I mean, you know that, that it's like, there's a difference from the, the first version of any product to like version seven, because version seven typically shows you that real life users have been using this for some time and a lot of feedback has gone into it. Um, so typically version one uh, is, a, is a pretty crappy product. 
Um, but if the idea is good enough, people, there will be early adopters that, that, that go for it. And then, yeah, as uh, I think it was a Steve Machin who had a, at a conference in Miami a few months back says, everybody wants to be first to be second. And I, I love the quote because it just, it speaks so much to the industry as well. Um, no one wants to like, like get all the, no one wants to be the first one in the cold water. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that, that was fun. Um, and then, then I say, I mean, again, as you enable organizations to do these things, um, which is, well, basically we're just, uh, for that theater in, in, in the UK that are now working with it, it's there. It just enables them to do a lot more because Previously, they were it was, they were doing like two hours of data searching every morning. Now they can spend those two hours like thinking creatively about how they want to act um, on those moments. So, and that I think is is obviously the the fun part that so, you can involve the organization and you can have like a, a brainstorming session and say like, okay, when we have a large group of people coming from far away, what do we want to do? Like, how do we make that their experience stand out? Because it's probably a special occasion. Uh, like, how do we accommodate so that the next time they're they are growing, the next time they have a a big big celebration of something, this is the venue that they return to. So, actually, when you say that it is tough to quantify the return on investment of these moments, it's actually it's not. It's because it's like the intangible value um, is huge, right? Because number one, it reduces the stress that you have of um, trying to search through all this data for two hours a day, right? Um, you know, so that's that takes away stress. It also helps um, changes the value conversation you're going to have with the people you're trying to help. It also extends your ability to have positive conversations with more people because you're not spending two hours culling through the data, and then from a tangible side, right? That's two hours of staff time across how many people that can be dedicated to more high value uh, endeavors, right? Which is like, instead of like figuring out who to talk to, I can fix, spend two hours figuring out what to say, you know, yeah. how to wow them, you know, which of course. actually, I mean, to me, that's a tremendous return on like easily, that's clear, like a clearly definable return on yeah. investment. I mean, yeah, I mean, but I, I guess maybe that's just like a sort of uh you know that's a professional. Uh, no, but I'm, I mean, my my point was just like for a theater to start doing customer moments. Yeah, that's like you don't know if that's gonna pay out, pay off. Um, so that was that was my point. I have. Oh I yeah, have, no, no, no. I, I understand that, no. but but I wanted to bring that up because I think that sometimes maybe the leap for people is the idea that like, well, we don't understand, like we can't put, you know, cause you maybe have the finance people going like, well, what are we investing in this project? What are we going to get back from it? And if you don't explain it just right, then it's easy to shut it down because this is the difference or this is probably the challenge a lot of times between marketing and finance is that the marketing people aren't thinking about this thing um, from a holistic manner and they can, they don't have the, the, the data or the ideas to back up what they're doing. But to me, I mean, the return on investment of this is huge, right? Because, I mean, to be able to do better customer service at scale is incredibly powerful because customer service is typically, in my experience, 
the greatest form of marketing you have, right? And it's also probably um, the least um, resource expensive. It's not cheap because doing the right, you know, doing the right thing is not often the cheapest way to get there. But it also it often can be the best form of marketing. Yeah. And what, what you're talking about is and I think fantastic that's, that's probably, for that. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest, like the biggest promise of AI and uh, and connected data, and is that it it will free up so much time for people to be creative and do valuable things. Um, because I mean, it's, it is the same person who, uh, who sets up customer moments, but it's also, it's the, it's, it's the same person who starts her day, like digging through Excel sheets and reports from the ticketing platform and tries to like figure out who are my target, who are my targets today. Um, and, and it's just, that is a little bit mind boggling. It's the same person. I mean, she's probably really, really good at setting up customer moments, being creative, and making lasting relationships with customers. But she spends, she starts every day spending two hours sifting through reports. And likely is to take that time away and and just have her be creative eight hours a day. Right. And I was going to say, too, if she's spending all this time culling through data and digging through reports, it's probably draining because if she's like super creative and, uh, and really energized by making connections and building relationships, this going through the data thing is probably going to be, it's going to be taxing her reserves of being able to do the really, really important work of building relationships and building connections. If I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, if, if, she, if she's anything like if the example person is anything like me, right. If, how can I make this stuff easier so that I can go yeah, deal we, with people? We do get that. Uh, I mean, sometimes we have conversations with people and we go like, okay, yeah, so, but, but how much time do you spend a, a week like setting up ad hoc reports for management and so on? And sometimes we'll get like, yeah, I spend maybe four hours and we go like, yeah, but we could, I mean, we could take that down to five minutes and we will get people to go like, yeah, but I kind of like it. And go like, oh, the, yeah, this is that I can't help you. <laughs> is there someone else I can talk to? <laughs> if you like it, if you like being beaten like with a cane, I can't help you. You're gonna continue to do that. <laughs> so uh, we get, we get, uh, yeah. That's what that's from talking to a lot of different organizations. You get, you get some really funny conversations sometimes. Yeah. Well. Now, I want to shift probably direction tremendously now here. And, you know, um, because one of the other things that you sent me a note about before we started doing this was you talked about the resale market. And um, this is a point where, like, a lot of the theater folks and all the sports, like, primary side people can probably tune tune out. Um, Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they want to listen to this because – but because I'm curious about it because there's a lot of brokers and a lot of people on the secondary market to listen to the podcast. Um, um, I wanted to ask you about the use of AI as far as like helping uh, either maximize resale or help doing resale more effectively or how, um, you know, it can make the partnership between the primary and the secondary market a little more valuable. Because at least from my point of view, which maybe can influence uh, a little bit of the back and forth, is one of the challenges that the resale market deals with and one of the reasons that it gets an extremely bad rap is that thing we were talking about earlier where – if we, if all, all of the incentives are to wait, we're we're just driving 
the price into the ground and it hurts the brand because it makes it seem like the ticket's not hot, the event's not great, um, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how does AI influence the resale market or how can it be a tool to help the the resale market? And, you know, all that other stuff that I just brought up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that was a long winded question. Uh, And and I'm going to I'm going to go for a really annoying answer uh, saying we'll see, Uh, because I think what's really happening right now is that we're for the first time seeing those two data, um, those two data sources being brought together. It might be that some primary ticketing companies are now also doing um, secondary, as we see with the flash seats on on AXS, um, and we'll see some that want to display that even on the primary ticketing site, they will see like those these seats are available on primary, these seats are available on secondary, they might want to show it in the same, which is I guess great for the uh, great for the customer um, because it, it means that you can see that you can get better seats, but they might be higher priced, um, and and that means that for the first time, um, of course, there will be some major uh, organizations that have brought their primary tickets, uh, ticket information, uh, and their stop hub uh, data together uh, and and have started to look at that, but. Like in a major way, we're now seeing how we're connecting those data sources in real time, and we'll see that will give us a lot of different insights, and it'll give us a lot of like new triggering, and um, the AI will start uh, learning from from like very very different sales patterns from what it has been trained on. Uh, we'll see, yeah. I mean, we will see events that haven't been sold out, where, but where some specific sections are like being resold um, due to, I mean, it, it could be that the seats are just that much better. Again, going back to the value of a seat. Um, but so, yeah, it, it is going to be a, a kind of a boring answer because, it, I mean, that's for me one of the big things of 2019 is that we'll see. I I expect that we'll see like people are just going into this going like some will say yeah yeah let's just put it up to the customer that they can see both secondary uh, both primary and secondary others are going no 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 hide the secondary we don't want to display that because we want to sell out the primary and then they can go to a different site and look up the secondary uh what's uh, what's available so now people are just going in and making decisions from i think well personal beliefs or like I don't want to be that kind of organization or that's hurting this. But, but we don't really know. We don't really know if like this. So displaying, displaying tickets that are on sale on secondary, like, well, if the, the customer had gone in and, and had bought like primary tickets, but like uh, at the, on the, at the back, like, was that what, was that what's going to happen or is, or was he just going to leave because there weren't any available good seats, but now he sees that, Hey, there are seats in, in second row. So I want to pick those up. They're on resale. I don't care. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the, I'll buy the, uh, with the markup. And I think how that also like enables us to tag customers based on, based on, on, the connected data will see some that typically just buy very late, but buy, but don't care about a, a, a markup. They still want the best seats, but they buy very late. Right. Um, right. 
So we'll, we'll learn a lot, um, I'm sure. Yeah, there, there's one thing that was interesting to me, too, when you we started thinking about this. Because I think I told you probably two years ago now that I was like, oh, I, I see the um, utility of your product being extremely valuable to the secondary market. And what, one of the things that you brought up earlier when you were talking about the customer moments and we're talking about how people can use a um, – you get reports. They'll tell them who their customers are and what to do. One of the challenges I know from talking to um, people at a ma- one of the major secondary market uh, technology platforms is that when they do share the data with their primary side partners, the primary side partner doesn't know what to do with the data, right? And this creates a lot of problems because like, they're giving them the data. They're telling them exactly who the customer is. They're telling them all kinds of stuff about the customer. And, they don't, and then like nobody ever does anything with the data. And I think really one of the, to me, one of the valuable things is like, if you're going to work with the secondary market and you're going to have a data sharing uh, agreement in place, mm-hmm. it makes so, you know it may. And again, sometimes like when I think something's really cool, it maybe sounds like a commercial. So I mean, but you know, I would tell people to talk to Martin no matter what. Um, you know, but for me, as somebody who you know kind of has worked on both sides, understands the setup here. This tool allows you to take that data that your secondary market partner is providing to you and it allows you to better serve the customers that are coming in, right? Because if you, you will be able to see if somebody's buying a bunch of tickets, you know, all over the arena for a bunch of different games and you can ask them, right? Because this is stuff that I used to do with a Rolodex when I was Mm, secondary market is like I would just make notes of all these people so I knew who my customers were and why they were doing that right so then I was able to better serve them you know it's you can do again take data make useful at scale and I think that's a really valuable thing because if you're going to be working with the secondary market because they have different tools and abilities to sell your tickets then you know using some kind of platform like this to help make that data useful and actionable so that you can better serve the people who are going to the secondary market and buying their tickets it should be a no-brainer, but that's just me. You know, that's just me. I mean, and I know this only because I've talked to people, right? Uh, you know, on both sides, right? On the secondary side, when they say, "Hey, look, we give, we share the data, we give it to people, they all know what to do with it." And then I've talked to people on the primary side who go, "Yeah, we get the data, we don't know how to take action on it, or you know, as fast as we can get it in, we don't know if it's." relevant anymore if it's useful anymore um you know, you know so something like any tool it doesn't have to be activity stream it's just like you should be investigating this because i think it's going to help you make exactly. money no but uh, uh and i think um, yeah it it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be our tool i think there's just so much happening on on like intelligence as a service like as you say i mean if you if you give even major organizations even sports clubs with a huge budget, if you give them like, this is your scanning data or this is your resale data. Well, the time and effort that it would take just to ingest it and then let alone learn from it and like continuously learn from it is just, uh, it's just not, it's just not doable. So, I mean, what, what's the timeline look for like somebody ingesting all that data? You, I know you said like an onboarding process for somebody working with you could take a month or two. Uh, in in some cases before you can really get the data rolling and actionable. So, you know, for somebody who's building it from scratch, what, what what's the timeline look like? I, I mean, optimistically, we're, we're talking a few <laughs> years. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, and I think for me, the, the biggest difference is that 
when we go like a few years, that would be that would be maybe ticketing data, a bit of customer data. And for the most ambitious ones I've seen now, I've seen some that are going and looking at scanning data and resale. Um, but that's typically where it ends. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, and one thing is like looking at your scanning data and ingesting it and, and so on and, and putting it into a data warehouse. But that's, that, that's the boring part and there's not much value created in that. Um, but as soon as you start connecting it to your other types of data, I mean, we're currently doing a few projects with specifically aimed at scanning data. And people just go like, okay, so this is an information about this ticket was scanned at this gate at this time. Like that's, it's very, very simple data. And in itself, it's extremely boring. But if you start using that, um, like your operations manager can see where the gate load is. Uh, when you match it up against the demographics, you can see that, okay, people that are coming from, uh, for the first time, uh, from far away, they typically show up very late. Uh, are we not informing them properly? Uh, and we can see, we can tag people up and say, this person is an early arriver. This person is a late arriver. And knowing that, a, that an average, that an average fan put, puts eight, eight dollars in revenue per hour, he's in the stadium. I mean, you can invest quite a lot of money in taking that segment of late arrivals and trying to change their behavior over time, like entice them to like, did you know that there's a family zone? Did you know that an hour before the game, we have this warm up session where we all sing this, this song or we have the team come in and say hi and all these things are happening and, and we would really like to see you or have you experienced that. I mean, if you can just take and you're not going to like, so we have 10,000 people that are typically late arrivals. You're not going to change the behavior of 10,000 people, but if you change the behavior of 500 people and they pay an extra eight bucks per person per game, that's a lot of money. So, so sort of learning from something as simple as when was this ticket scanned, but mapping it back to the customer demographics and the transaction data that just unlocks so much. And, I mean, I've spoken to a, an NBA team that have been going into this and, and they've learned a lot, but they're still just, I mean, typically there's a sort of a, a glass ceiling or there's a, a limit to what people can achieve when they're doing it by themselves because they're not, I mean, you won't have like one data analyst that can do everything, that can do like both bring the data together, uh, wash it and create a, a unique version of the truth and, and that I then do a great solution on top of it and then start applying like cluster analysis and, and trained AI models. You, you won't have, you just won't have that in house. Uh, so that's, that I think is why we're seeing more and more of these as a service companies uh, pop up because they, they solve a big problem, but at a completely different cost and at a very different uh, risk because you know, I mean, if we're not getting value from it, we just unsubscribe in six months. Right. Who cares? Well, you've invested a, a tremendous amount of money in something that you may not gain value from. The other thing is too, and maybe you alluded to it, maybe you even said it straight out, but it's, I think it re bears reiterating is the fact that you're also, if you only have your data to work with, you're limited in how useful the data is for you because 
let's say if you have scan data for your building and you only have the scan data from your building, then you only know what the patterns are of people who are going to come to your building. But if you look at, if you have access to scan data and, you know, the algorithm and all the things are built based on all the venues in your neighbor, in your community or all the people or lots of people in your, your industry, right? You can look at, so you, you, you get better insights because you can go like, well, Hey, look, if my, um, you know, if I'm in DC, right. And everybody's arriving in the last 45 minutes before the puck drops for a Capitals game, right? Because my Lord, I try to get there early because like the crush at the end is brutal. Um, you know, maybe all of a sudden I look at, you know, across the NHL at the scan data and I go, well, the average NHL person, a fan gets into the building on average an hour before the game. The game starts, right? How can I how can I create that environment? Because again, like you said, maybe they're spending an extra eight dollars and eight dollars across. You know, let's say ten thousand. You know, if you get a thousand people in, right? That's eight thousand extra dollars, right? Maybe you do um, you know some kind of special that gets people in. You know, maybe they they, they get a happy hour or something, right? Eight thousand dollars a game of almost pure profit over the course of 50 games a year starts to add up. And if you, you know, use that one insight and you kind of couple it with a couple more, all of a sudden you're talking real money, right? Or am I wrong? You're talking a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's like, I don't think that's why you're giving, you're giving the marketing team a lot of new angles uh, because typically if they're just selling tickets, it's a very, um, it's a very straightforward communication. It's very repetitive. Uh, suddenly you're going like, okay, but we have this customer segment that they come to every game, but they arrive five minutes before the game. That's a very specific segment. And they, they're already coming to every game. So they shouldn't get our buy more tickets uh, campaigns. They should get, hey, here's, here's an incentive for you to, to, to show up early. Um, and that's so you, you, you suddenly you're enabling the marketing team to see the whole customer base from a lot of different angles um, and really get to learn them, uh, learn about their behavior a lot more. Um, and that's I think that's one of the, the big promises of connected data. It's it's going to take some years. Um, I mean, we're going to do one category at, at a time. Um, and, and currently we're. I mean, just, just from cobbling, um, just from cobbling digital campaign data with the ticketing data, uh, is a big thing. Uh, suddenly you, or, and, and customer demographics, suddenly you can see like, okay, this Facebook campaign is brought in, um, 70% first time bookers. So that's why I use paid media. If a Facebook campaign is converting 5% first time bookers, I mean, maybe you should have connected with them in, in a different channel, not a paid media channel. And those are some of the things, some of the metrics that you get from connecting um, more data sources. And I think we'll see more and more of that um, as as technology sort of enables organization to do that. Um, yeah, so that's... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, to me, that makes a, a tremendous sense, too, because I think the one of the promises that, you know, you use digital marketing as an example, which I know is, you know, the easiest for you to scale and uh, understand quickly. Um, you, you know, the promise there has been that like, oh, we will be able to measure, um, you know, how effective or how ineffective our marketing spends are. And, you know, sometimes I think that, um, 
you know, some of these campaigns, they don't look successful because they don't have the, you don't have the right information. You're asking, you know, one of the things I say about data all the time is, and when I was saying, I don't know anything about data earlier, I was joking, um, was that you're asking the wrong questions of your data. Right. And because if you ask a bad question, you get a bad answer. It's the, you know, my garbage question goes in, I get a garbage sure. answer out. Yeah. And, and I think that the, one of the, the valuable things of, of something like this is that, um, if you use, you know, connected data and artificial intelligence, what ends up happening is that you have a, another partner, and you can tell me if I'm wrong after I finish this, in helping you ask better questions to better serve your customers, right? It's, um, it won't ever be a tool that is meant to replace people. Right. Because I think part of the challenge that we're dealing with, right, which like you said, the, the technology is not the most interesting thing about what you're doing. It's the ability to free up people to do their jobs better, to be more effective. And I think the valuable thing here is having, a, you know, data or intelligence as a service. Um, you know, it, it's another partner to help you be able to do the things only people can do. Right. Which is like connecting with with customers, um, uh, you know, creating these fantastic customer moments that, um, you know, encourage devotion and, you know, love for the event, you know, and continuing to reiterate that, um, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I think one of the, I mean, again, one of the big promises of, of the technology is that we went really fast from having too little data to having way too much, um, in the organization. Uh, so now, uh, yeah, so like five years ago, it was all about uh, it was all about getting to the data and bring it together and uh, and setting up data warehouses and, and setting up some the first visualizations. I think now we're in a we're in a position where the average organization has way too much data to act on. Especially, I mean, exactly as you say, with the resale data, you can get a full data data set of this is all your resale information from the last week, and it 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 just ends up sitting there. Um, so I think the, you know, the, the, the ongoing trend now is, is that we'll see more and more tools that, that, do, that do actual data curation saying, okay. And, and that's, that's for me is also why it's, it, it's very valuable that, that we're seeing these tools that are built for the industry. They're not just visual. They're not, not, and I'll they, they do air quotes and say like, they're not, dumb visualizations. Uh, they're, they're not just showing you the numbers. They're also actually going into saying, hey, here's an important number and you should you should be looking at this because this looks as if this, yeah, I mean, the prediction for this event is very, very high. So you should hold back on marketing or this uh, is following a sales pattern that is very unusual for this type of event. You might want to look into this. Um, and I think that's sort of the curation where you have the service actually um, being like the data monitor, uh, but a data monitor that understands not only if data is coming in, but also interpreting that data and seeing, hey, um, we're seeing a very heavy gate load on uh, gate G, which is very, uh, which is very uncommon for, for this uh, time. Uh, so you might want to have some people go over there or we have someone who um who didn't we have like one of your top 20 customers didn't show up yesterday i mean 
the average organization is never going to get to that detail level of seeing of saying okay we had our top one of our top 20 customers had a ticket for yesterday and the scanning data shows that that ticket was not scanned that's a very significant customer moment potentially uh, it's something that if i tell if i tell you you immediately your brain goes like we should act on this i mean this is we should reach out i mean we should find out why she didn't show up we should offer her uh like, can you come back another day to see the same show? We want to offer you a discount. I mean, this is one of your top customers. And today, most organizations are completely oblivious to whether people showed up or not. Yeah, we, 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 we let us re, uh, get you a ticket to another one. We don't like give you a discount. We're going to make sure that you're, is everything okay because you're always here? You know, all these things. I mean, this is, to me, that sort of sums it all up in a nutshell, right? Which is that the, the real value here is, you know, big data was like, it seemed to me, was always used as a way to create the lowest common denominator. Um, and that's unfortunate because I don't think that's very valuable for people. Whereas like some of the AI tools and you're using AI as a service kind of model, it seems like instead of going for the lowest common denominator, you have the ability to go for the most personal common, you know, common denominator, I guess, if I can coin a phrase, which makes absolutely no sense. But, and I think that's most important because as there's more and more entertainment options, there's more and more ways for demands for people's time and attention and their money. The key differentiator is going to be how we make people feel. And I think I, that I'm something like this. Take out of uh, one of my favorite quotes um, of someone in, in Denmark, who does a lot of, uh, he's written a lot of books on, on customer relationships and, and customer moments and, and customer loyalty. And he goes, it's all about show me you know me and show me you care. So show me you know me, that typically involves some kind of data collection. Show me you care is all about the people. So, I mean, yeah, if you if you don't know, you can't do the people part. Um, so, yeah, we enable the the we know you part, but we can't like how you want to act on one of your top twenty customers not showing up. Hey, I don't know. I mean, that but that's the fun part. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you can show I can show you that I care about people, but not, never on a scale without some information, right? Because then it's like hit or miss. Do I, do I know this loud person is a valuable customer or, or just a pain in my butt, right? It, but that's, that's right. I mean, part of the reason that any of us do any of these things is because we dig people. And, um, you know, and I think that may be like a, um, the valuable thing to close on is that like you show me, you know me, but most importantly, you can show me that you care. Um, so Martin, how people find you on the internet once again? Um, well, we're on www.activitystream.com. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, it's probably going to be mostly about football, my Twitter account, but uh, and that's the European football. Uh, it's probably going to be about Liverpool. And yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry yeah. to hear about the injury on, on, of Harry Kane. I know you feel strongly for the Spurs, um, but uh, but but. Yeah, it, sometimes that might be a, a relevant blog post. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, look me up. 
Yeah, I would definitely tell people to check out the activity stream blog. Uh, there's some really good stuff there um, that get put up, just like the discount uh, piece that I'm going to try to remember to link to. Uh, Martin, thank you again for doing this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. I'll see you in Dallas. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Martin Gameltoff from Activity Stream, for taking the time to speak with us on the Business of Fun podcast today. As always, you can find out what I'm up to by visiting my website. That's www.davewakeman.com, where you'll find my blog, clients, all that kind of stuff. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at David Wakeman. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can do all these things, right? Um, if you are into the, what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. We're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, all those things. Um, subscribe and leave a review. These things help tremendously. Um, help people discover the podcast and help make sure that I can continue to deliver the content that you have come to uh, know, trust, and enjoy. If you're going to be at Intix next week, make sure you find me. Find Martin. Find Simon and Kat from Booking Protect. All of us. We'll all be together probably hanging out. Um, you can visit Booking Protect at this stand number 204, which is going to be right near Ticketmaster. Um, if you're going to be there, send me an email, dave at davewakeman.com, and let me know. Put Intix in the subject line, and we'll make sure we get a chance to get together and say hello and talk. Um, make sure you check out Simon's talk about customer review sites and using those to grow your business. Make sure you come and see me. I'm going to be on a panel called Ask the Consultants. I'm also going to be doing a presentation with a, a good friend of mine, Andrew Thomas, who is the guy who started uh, Ticketing Professionals Conference, which if you have never been, you should go to. And another friend of ours, uh, Alan Gefflin. And then finally, I'm going to be doing a revenue workshop, uh, 60 minutes where we can talk about how to help you make more money. Um, I'm putting together a nice little handout for that, 101 ways to grow relationships with your clients, expand your market, and make more money. It'll be 101 ideas um, that even if you're not at Intix, I'll give it to you just by signing up for my email, which uh, comes out once a week on Sundays. That's You can get that by emailing me at dave at davewakeman.com and putting in the subject line newsletter. And I'll get you the 101 ways to make more money once it's ready. Um, finally, I want to thank our sponsor, Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can give your customers a better buying experience, more customization to, for their purchases, peace of mind, especially as on-sale dates become longer and longer into the future, and how you can create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. Um, again, before I go, thank you for listening. I know this episode was ex probably longer than most, a lot to get through, um, and I hope I see you at Intix. And keep an eye out for other Intix-related content that's going to be coming out all week. It's going to be great. Um, until next time, thank you for listening. I'll see you all again soon.